Hey everybody, welcome back to Gray Malkin Lane's Patreon channel. I am so happy to be joined by uh, an incredible writer that I got to interview on my show several months ago. Oh, actually, I think it's been about a year now. Uh, Mr. Neil Clyde, how are you, Neil? Good, how you doing? Thanks I'm, for having me back. Yeah, I'm so good. We got to talk to you about your uh, X-Men Unlimited work and uh, also about your uh, short story about Kid Omega and time-traveling Magneto and all that uh, in the book. And you have a new book coming out through Aconite, uh, coming out in mid-May, correct? That's right, May 16th. Yet another Kid Omega story, but this one is a full novel, original novel. I am so excited, and I want to hear about it. Uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, Neil, give us a little bit of your origin story. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've been writing comics for quite a while now. I've been reading comics since I was a little kid. Um, my dad got me into them. Me and my brother um, just came home and basically wanted us out of his hair and threw us a bag of comics and said, go read this, leave me alone. Um, <laughs> I mean, he he also liked comics, so it was fine. But over the years, I taught myself how to draw from those comics. And from there, I taught myself how to write. And I've worked my way up through a pretty healthy comics career, starting in like hand built mini comics all the way up to working for Marvel and DC and then doing my own independent graphic novels through Dark Horse and NBM Publishing and now Comicsology Originals. Um, and then over the last maybe 10 years, I've actually gotten my hand into prose, uh, did a prose adaptation of Spider-Man Craven's Last Hunt, which came right. out from Marvel Press several years ago. And then uh, an original Powers novel with Brian Michael Bendis um right after that and then as you mentioned just recently i did the kid omega story which was nominated for a 2022 scribe award from the international association of media tie-in writers so that was fun and you, uh and, well, the phoenix got, oh, i was just gonna say you've got an impressive career my friend that's a that's a pretty amazing body of work well thanks you know i'd, I'd like to stay busy you know i got stories they got to be told that's when I when I originally talked to you, I was less familiar with your work than I am now. I had read some of your Marvel stuff, and I had read your uh, your short story about Kid Omega. Uh, but but I've read more of your work since. Uh, what are you best known for? Would you say? Um, um Twitter. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard for it's hard to say because I feel like a lot of people come into my work from different areas. A lot of my because I'm Jewish, a lot of my Jewish audience will come in from my original Jewish graphic novels, Brownsville and the Big Con that I did for NBM Publishing back in like the early two, 2000s. Um, but I do know people who have just seen some of the short story work that I've done for Marvel and DC. It really kind of depends on the person. Um, it, lately, I, we did we had a pretty big splash. Myself and Andrew Moody did a book called The Panic mm. for Comicsology Originals and Dark Horse Comics. And that got a, a little bit little bit of buzz uh, it was like a, it's a New York disaster story. Um, it's a little political. That was kind of entertaining to a lot of people. But I don't think I have like a like a, a saga or a bone where people are like, oh, it's Neil Clyde's this, right? It's just a lot of fun differentiating stories that I've done over the years. Yeah, yeah. Kind of depending on what they have read of your work. Now, I've gotten to know a number of creative talents. Uh, switching from comics to prose, I know, is its own type of challenge. Switching from character to character. Uh, I associate you with Kid Omega more than anything, simply because I loved your Kid Omega story so much. I think I told you in our first interview, he's a character that I don't often love, but I'm learning to love. 
I recently did a reread of uh, the series that's currently being published featuring him, which is uh, Jason Aaron's X-Force. And I was really, I've been challenging myself to look for things that I love rather than uh, about the things that I don't normally love. <laughs> and so I was looking for redeeming value in Kid Omega. And I actually was much more charmed by him this time around. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, what I love about Kid Omega is that really kind of depending where you read, on, read him, he's got a fascinating arc. He's really started off as kind of a villain threat nuisance. And then now is like more of like a charming hero slash anti-hero working with X-Force, where he's got, as you say, a lot of redeeming qualities. And my focus has been sort of the bridge between those two, right? How, like, what kind of, what, what happened to him? Or, or what has he done to really, over the course of his career, really uh, embrace the value of friendship and heroism and having teammates and being selfless versus selfish? And that's kind of what I explored in my first story, the short story. And this book really um, expands on that as he gets paired up with Alex Summers' Havoc. And the two of them really are both characters that have self-esteem problems and have to kind of work together to uh, have this sort of like mentor-teacher, not father-son relationship, but like, uh, sorry, mentor-student relationship and, and work together to, you know, to, to solve a problem. My word, I, uh, I'm i a little bit of a Havoc expert now. What, once a year, or excuse me, once a month, I put a character on trial on my show and I'll read their whole chronology. And I basically kind of write a thesis about them. And I got to do Havoc earlier this year. And I love this character. I have not done this for Kid Omega. However, I did pay a lot of attention to him in X-Force. And he kind of comes across like Mr. White Privilege for a long time. He's having bodies rebuilt to make himself look better. And he's like, pulling resources for himself. And uh, then you get this very tragic backstory of abandonment. And like you work in some codependency issues and then you're like, oh, this is the guy that I'm reading about. Now I get it. Yeah, and that's why he works really well in a relationship with the Summers men, which is just a, a, a group of men who have ju are just dealing with, you know, having been abandoned by one another or having, you know, a lot of... Um, self-esteem issues that come bring them into conflict. Um, and, you know, Alex and, and Quentin are a great pair because of their latent daddy issues. And I, I really enjoyed kind of playing off the fact that, you know, Quentin doesn't see that at first. He doesn't see that, like, we're more alike than you think we are. And Alex is like, oh, yeah, I get this kid. Like, I, I totally see where he's coming from. Now, the Aconites, the Aconite books take place in the era, it's alternate universe, it takes place in the era of the Jean Grey school and the Weapon X school, or the Charles Xavier school. Is this, uh, is this during the time when Havoc was inverted? No, this was okay. the Un Uncanny Avengers, uh, right at the beginning of Uncanny oh, Avengers. Oh, sure, uh, right, I, right. I, I will say because it's kind of its alternate universe, we're playing a little bit with the timeline, so we've kind of pulled some things up and pushed some things down to kind of make it work. But the if you look at it, it's pretty close where he's starting to lead on the uncan you know, the Avengers around the same time that the story takes place, which is um right before what I want to say was Bendis's the trial of Jean Grey. Um, yeah, yeah. X-Men Guardian Galaxies crossover. So there's a lot of really good confluence of continuity, but we are sort of playing a little bit fast with kind of how close it is fabulous uh and this yeah this is the era where havoc gives his favorite uh or his famous i'm not a mutant call me alex speech 
<laughs> it's just so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, right. So this is probably right after that happens. It's after that issue where he's suddenly become like, he's the leader. He's going to kind of do it. And even in, in the issue, uh, sorry, issue. Oh my God. It's in the book. In the book, there's a point where like Cyclops is asking him to go with Quentin on this uh, space adventure, uh, which is the meat of the book. And he even says like, are you sure you want me? Like I just became leader. We just defeated a bunch of super Nazis and I really didn't do all that much. And so that's kind of where that all happens. It's right after he basically stands up and says, I'm Alex. And then this might take place like the next day. Can we presume this is a Shi'ar space adventure? Uh, the Shi'ar do show up at some point. Fantastic, man. I, uh, I'm really excited to read your book. Can you give us kind of a soft pitch? I know it has not yet been released when we're recording this, but it will be released as we're recording this. <laughs> Can you right. give us a soft pitch about what to expect? I will definitely get it in the mail that week. Absolutely. So uh, Quentin Quire uh, decides he's going to start at the third mutant school Kid Omega's Mutants Without Borders. And, <laughs> oh my goodness, I'm already in love. <laughs> and he recruits a bunch of like the younger generation to kind of be part of it um, and has his first early adopters, which are kind of his best friends, like Glob Herman, Phoebe Cuckoo, a bunch of the younger crowd. And they all get kidnapped by a group of mysterious aliens. And uh, it's Quentin's fault and he can't find them. And they this this alien group leaves him a message that says, have Summers deliver a phoenix egg, uh, implying that you give us a phoenix egg, we'll give you back your students. And so he has to sort of go hat in hand to Scott Summers, who he assumes the aliens mean, and say, look, I hate you, but help me find my friends. And <laughs> Scott is not available, but thankfully there's another Summers that is available. And so Anna Summers that actually has a ton of space experience, Alex, who has led the Star Jammers, and so Alex and uh, Quentin team up with the Star Jammers uh, to go basically on an intergalactic scavenger hunt to find this Phoenix egg and then have to use it to ransom back these students. And what's great about it is that it, a little bit of Star Jammer history. By the way, I love the Star Jammers, flamboyant, yeah. intergalactic adventurer pirates that are amazing. Um, but Right before, like early on, like I mentioned, Alex was leading the Star Jammers because his father, Corsair, who led, originally led the Star Jammers, had been killed by the third Summers brother, Gabriel Summers Vulcan. Sure, yeah, yeah. And so by the time this book happens, Corsair has been resurrected through mysterious means. And this is the first time that Alex and Corsair have seen each other since that happened. So you've got Alex and Quentin having to sort of deal with one another while Alex is also having to deal with his issues with his father. And it's kind of a nice little stew of emotion. Um, with, Kid, with Kid Omega as the focus, but we get a lot of Summer's family drama too. This is going to be is. exciting, man. I'm doing, I'm doing an episode like this uh, on the Summer's family pretty soon with Philip C.V. So I've been rereading a lot of their history. Uh, I'm genuinely excited for your book. This is wonderful. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm excited for people to read it. It was a lot of fun to write. Now, the point of this channel is uh, we're giving focus to obscure characters. We're trying to give a voice to, uh, or a little bit of literary analysis, or even just an education for characters that don't get a lot of attention. I usually propose characters that started in the 60s, because that's kind of where my show begins. But I like to let my guests kind of select their own. And you chose a character that I don't think I have thought of in seven or eight years 
that maybe like if you made me list like the most obscure characters at Marvel I could think of, this guy would be on the list. Uh, tell us who you chose and why. So I chose the Starhammer, uh, who otherwise <laughs> is known as, and I, I may mispronounce his name, Vuk or Vuk or uh, I think, yeah, I say it, Vuk. Yep, that's fine. Um, and so he is a uh, the last surviving. He was the last surviving member of the Dabari, which was an alien race. Uh, spoiler alert that was destroyed by the phoenix um, <laughs> and i chose Starhammer because he actually appears in my book he's got a little cameo and uh i like that character i did a, a, a small deep to, small dive on him um but there's a lot that i didn't get to cover i just kind of covered his relationship to the phoenix really because the phoenix plays looms large in my book um but and i didn't realize that he actually has sort of far-reaching implications be even beyond the X-Men, which I was not aware of until recently. So I'm excited to talk about him. He's got some crazy history. Uh, I'm going to ask one big question before we jump in. Uh, I'm uh, I'm still trying to figure this out, and I think it's going to be changing in the comic suit, which is even more frustrating. But according to Neil Clyde, what is the Phoenix Force? Uh, the Phoenix Force is a cosmic entity uh, that's the nexus of really psionic power in the in in the universe um who i don't know some people call the phoenix a, a parasite who kind of like lives to burn the universe and cleanse it uh, from its failings um it's really kind of i feel like it, it it kind of slides the description depending on how they're using the character and uh, the entity and for what um What's your, I'm kind of curious to what I, your. Well, I mean, I can give the, I'll give the 30 second thing, but we're going to, we're going to spend some time on this on my show later this year, because we're getting into some Jean Grey focused territory that oh. uh, I've got to address this question. Like what is the Phoenix Force? I think it was in, initially intended to be kind of the focus of Jean's power when she lets her kind of emotion go. But there's also this element of it being kind of a cosmic space bird. And it seems to shift every once in a while. It seems to be like an entity that wants a human host uh, so that it can experience human emotions. It's also been listed as kind of one of the founding uh, universal entities, like on the order of like death and uh, uh, eternity where it's it's uh it's it's an entity that has been around since the cosmic beginning they just keep adding it, it used to feel special but they just keep adding more and more with it the avengers versus x-men era there was so much phoenix and the phoenix has powered so many people and then we have jason aaron's recent avengers where she is a member of the avengers of 1 million bc and has like a human host for a bunch of years and you're just like what is this thing <laughs> i'm still trying to define it Right. So for me, that's basically how I've defined it. I mean, it's this ages old entity that, and I like the layer where it's sort of like the nexus of psionic power. Because yeah, touched, I like that touched, description. Yeah, it's touched the Greys, it's touched Quentin, it's touched, you know, like there's various, it finds hosts that have um, sort of this Omega level capability. Um and whether it's to experience human emotions and thoughts and, you know, what have you, I, I, mean, I couldn't tell. But I've heard it said, or I've read it said, specifically back in, like, the Claremont Burn era, that it was it's also there to cleanse the universe 
uh, it's there to cleanse the universe of, of wrong at some point. It burns away the things that aren't working in the universe. Um, to which makes it them. which makes it rather Galactus like almost, but yeah, it does sound like they're going to be doing some things with the Phoenix in the comics coming up. But when I asked this question to Jordan White, he said, "I can't answer that because we're <laughs> going to be putting some content out that may change the definitions." So I'm excited to see where they take it. Uh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I said me too. Yeah, we'll see what happens in the comics. Uh, now, the most surprising part of the Starhammer for me, upon doing my research for this very weird character, uh, were two things. Number one, where his first appearance was, which is something I knew, but I just forgot. And second, the way this character has kind of been used over the years, but it never seems like it's the same character until someone finally says, hey, look, it's this guy. <laughs> I, think, I think the handbook guys had to uh, had to tie it all together. So, so his introduction is definitely surprising to, it's going to be surprising to a lot of people, mostly because when you think of the issue that he first appeared in, there's a much larger thing happening in that issue <laughs> than the appearance of Starhammer. And we'll get into that in a moment. And I even remember that like scene where he appears, but they didn't really tie it. Like I didn't really, I didn't really knit together that appearance with where you see him later on. It was just like, oh, he's just some random alien. Um, but yeah, he's he's changed over the years, and his his focus has changed. And even later on, his some of his appearances get a little confusing. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I like that. I like that he's, so I'm also like a DC guy and we're going to go to DC for a second, but like John Stewart, the character, the Green Lantern, John Stewart, like yeah. one of the big parts of his, of who he is, is the fact that he let the planet Xanchi die, right? And so like, that's a big thing for him and they keep referencing it that. And what I love is that with the Phoenix, even though things have changed over the year, that sort of rooting of the most, the most terrible thing the Phoenix has ever done in Marvel continuity is wipe out the Dabari. And so, like, his character, even though he's changed, and even though the Phoenix has changed, that has sort of remained firm and fact, and really yeah, has yeah. always, what's the word, um, informed who he is as a character. So. so we'll open with his first appearance in just a second. I want to put on uh, record, probably as we open, Chris Claremont and John Byrne's Dark Phoenix Saga is probably the number one most beloved storyline in Marvel Comics history. Uh, that's a strong statement. There's a few others that may hold a close torch. Craven's Last Hunt being one, which you adapted, is another that's just a beloved favorite. Uh, by the way, we just did the trial of Craven the Hunter uh, on my show. So that's another character I feel like I know intimately. <laughs> that's a side note. Uh, Claremont uh, needed Jean and the Phoenix to be raised to these levels of kind of cosmic proportions. Uh, there were a lot of discrepancies about how they wanted the story to end. And a lot of this is public record, but they weren't getting along in some ways is I think the nicest way to say it. Uh, it seems as though Claremont wrote that uh, Phoenix would destroy a sun and then burn kind of through these broccoli looking people on a planet nearby that get wiped out unintentionally when the Phoenix kills them. And one of the interesting parts about what we're going to review today is you see Byrne take on this character, Starhammer, and then you see Claremont take on this character, Starhammer. And it's almost like they're still having this feud years and years later over decades about the Dabari weren't supposed to be there, but now we're owning it. Uh, it's it's an interesting thing. We'll get to we'll get more into when we get to those comics on the show. But do you have any thoughts on uh, on the Dabari? No, I, I mean, it's really it's it's there's was a lot of controversy. Uh, 
over the story and the ending of that story for sure. I mean, originally, Jean Grey wasn't supposed to die at the Correct. end of that, right? She was supposed to live. And uh, I don't know whether, remember whether it was Shooter, like Jim Shooter, or whoever was kind of in charge at the time, the editor-in-chief at the time, was kind of working with them on it and basically said, like, there's no way that she stays alive, right? Like, she has to die. And there was a lot of discussion back and forth. And I think Claremont wanted her to live, if I recall. And I don't remember, I don't have that history in front of me, but I'm pretty sure he wanted her to live and Byrne was like, no, she's got to go. And that's where sort of the crux of it was, right? Am I right or wrong? No, you're pretty right. We could get into the weeds of that, uh, how Claremont then created Madeline Pryor to kind of reclaim that story and to tell this. Because Claremont loves to write uh, stories about women who seize their power. We've had long histories of Madeline Pryor as part of the team, of Storm without her powers, of Carol Danvers without her powers. He clearly had other ideas, I think is the easy way to take it. At some point, burn through these broccoli-looking people on this planet when the Phoenix destroyed everything. And then at some point, I think someone went back and said, hey, look way back to the beginning of Marvel in the Silver Age, because here's this broccoli-looking guy. I don't know exactly what the origin of all this is, but it's really fascinating. So the first appearance of Vuck, or Starhammer, is in Avengers number four, which is famous for being the issue that revived Captain America out of the iceberg. There's crazy stuff going on with the Avengers. These old Avengers issues are so wonky and like <laughs> all over the place. Amazing. It, it's really wonderful, but it's so camp 60s. Uh, we Captain America is almost supplementary to this. He's come out of the iceberg. He's struggling with his sanity and his memories. Bucky's gone. You know, this is kind of that era where he's in the very early heroism era. Uh, at the time when this happened, he was supposed to have been in the iceberg 20 years, but because of sliding time scale, he was actually there for like a hundred or, you know, <laughs> however that works. Uh, but right after he's restored, all the Avengers get turned to stone by this random reporter from a crowd. And Captain America goes looking for the reporter uh, all over the city. And he's he's literally just like peeking into windows, <laughs> trying, to, trying to find the guy. And he finally sees like, oh, there's that guy with that camera. Uh, uh, tell me your thoughts on this introduction. He's a, he's a better detective than Batman is. I mean, this is why <laughs> he was able to, in a giant city of New York, by the way, a city that he doesn't recognize, a city that he hasn't been in in years and years and years, and just... He's just walking around well, peeking in windows, you know. Yeah, he's like, not even focused on everything else. He's just like, I'm going to go look at this random city that I don't know, that I haven't been in in, in a while, and I'm going to find, I'm going to pull the needle out of the haystack, and there he is. There's the reporter. <laughs> Uh, the uh, now this reporter is Buck, and Buck has surrounded himself with armored men. Uh, but he gets unmasked as a fuzzy-headed broccoli man, which is a really jarring. You're like, what the hell? I'm sure readers in the '60s were like, what is this? Uh, do you want to give us Buck's original speech to Captain America about uh about his origins? I do, but I did want to say before we got into that that I don't know how surprised most readers would be because you're talking like it's so close to the era of like the Jack Kirby monsters and like all those like unknown worlds sort of stories that you had a lot of aliens and a lot of creatures and I think there was just like oh it's sort of tying that into it a little bit so I think it was like <laughs> okay it's just weird it's it's weird to us now I think it's weird to us now because that issue when you think about it is like Captain America came back that must have been the biggest thing that happened there and it was but you're also kind of like, oh, this character who's been who's still around in the 90s 
has his first appearance in here. It's crazy. Anyway. it's a, Yeah, it's a bizarre origin story. My word. Yeah, and so he says, uh, after you've heard my story, you may feel pity for me instead of that raw hatred which I see mirrored in, mirrored in your eyes. Unhand me. I cannot bear physical contact with primitive beings. I come from a far distant galaxy. My name would be meaningless to you as earth tongues cannot pronounce it. Except Centuries. it's just Buck. Right, yeah. <laughs> Which I think we can pronounce it. <laughs> and we do, constantly. Um, centuries ago, due to engine failure, my spaceship crashed on Earth, embedding itself deep into the bottom of the sea. I meant Earthlings no harm. I roamed her planet, seeking someone to help me free my ship. But those I saw feared me, attacked me. In self-defense, I used my ray gun on them, turning them to stone for 100 of your Earth hours. And then Captain America goes, your hair in the dark, you must have looked like a woman to them. And turning me to stone, that must be the origin of the legend of Medusa. <laughs> but why did you use your powers on the Avengers? And he says, because the one who calls himself the Submariner, he found me some days ago and told me he would free my ship from the ocean's depths if I would turn the Avengers to stone. I had to do it. So Cap knows the Submariner, by the way. Right? <laughs> Apparently, they met somewhere. <laughs> yeah, they've met before. And he doesn't really kind of respond to that so much, right? So here's this. Here's the quick version of this guy's origin as it's pronounced. He's centuries old, which is something already that's alarming. Uh, he was in space and his ship crashed on Earth and he got trapped. So he hid on an island where people thought he was Medusa because he could turn people to stone with his little gun. And then eventually, centuries later, uh, Namor recruited him to turn the Avengers to stone and promised to help him get off of Earth. But really, it's the Avengers that help him end up freeing his ship and he just takes off for space. This is a wild origin story. <laughs> pretty crazy. It's it's pretty insane. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then what I love about it is that it really kind of ties together because I guess it took him a while to get home, Right. Because something happens before he gets home. Well, we don't really know why he was in space in the first place. We don't know about this guy's family life. We don't know what he was doing for centuries on Earth. There's a lot that's unexplored, even in this crazy origin. Stan and Jack seemed really obsessed with tying in uh, like literary myths to their characters. You see a lot of this in their 60s characters. Like, oh, look, that's the origin of Medusa. Or here, this guy's, I don't know, that's Paul Bunyan. That's where he came from. Like, they had a lot of that kind of stuff in their comics, which is really interesting because there are actual Gorgons and, you know, Inhumans named Medusa on Earth as well. Uh, yeah, so he he heads back into space. And this is where we pick up the Dark Phoenix stuff, which is, of course, years later. Uh, and the Dabari are killed. They're often called the Broccoli People, but... More commonly in the comics, at least in this era, they're called the Asparagus People. And this is the Dark Phoenix saga, and it's genocide, and Jean Grey can never live it down. And it's always part of her story because these people died. We'll get to that in a little while, but do you want to talk about the Dabari at all? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I don't really know, and I haven't really done a lot of reading about like why John Byrne picked these characters, right? Like, the, it's clearly a race that exists you know having seen him in avengers number four and rather than coming up with sort of a a new race of aliens he decided to say well i'm going to take these guys and you know do that so that's fascinating to me the fact that i feel like even burn was kind of like this continuity wonk 
who was saying like, oh, I'm going to go back and find an alien race and kind of throw them in there. I don't really have much to say about them. They're cannon fodder for this story, pretty much. I would have to ask John uh, John Byrne this directly, but my, I don't know, the way it works in my head is he just drew some green alien guys. And then later he's doing the Sensational She-Hulk book, which we'll talk about. And when John Byrne was doing Sensational She-Hulk, he is focusing on this character, uh, Jennifer Walters, who's constantly breaking the fourth wall. She's talking to readers. And weirdly, what he loved to do in this series was just bring in every obscure character possible. Had, are you familiar with the Sensational She-Hulk uh, series? I've read, read issues. I, didn't read, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've, I know enough about it, obviously, to inform the character for me going forward. But I do know that there was a lot of fourth wall breaking and there was a lot of him sort of picking fights with other staffers uh through the characters yeah yeah and not only that like he he would make a whole arc out of sprag the living hill or uh the razorback the warthog man would be her her ally uh he made the blonde phantom like an old 50s hero into like a more uh kind of a short squat woman who was like aiding she hulk and like made a lot of comedy around that uh, and well, he didn't use big characters. It was always these really obscure. He brought he brought the changeling back as a zombie, like the guy from the 60s uh, that died in the place of Professor X. Uh, it, just really wild stories. So I find that very charming, to be honest with you. And, and I'm I'm a big fan of taking these, like with the Phoenix chase, just to kind of dive back into the novel, like it, it's set in space, right? So there's you've got the whole cosmic landscape to play with. And what was great was that I got to, you know, populate the, the the road from A to B, you know, with just crazy Marvel aliens. And really I did a lot of digging into like very specific aliens that I wanted and and what have you. Um I don't know if you watched the Hulu show Moda uh, the Modoc show. I did, did yes, with uh with Pat Oswald. It's great. It's a great show. And there's one episode that focuses on a, a race of aliens called the Seagramites, who have showed up in the fourth issue of Bob Layton's Hercules miniseries. Um, who are the like finest distillers in the galaxy. And they use these characters um, who became like party maniacs in the show. And it really kind of like, there was that moment where it was like, I remember those characters from Hercules number four back in the eighties. And so to me, that's very, like, I love that kind of stuff. I, I love, love it too. It's literally my favorite thing. And in the, in the She-Hulk Disney plus series, they do a lot of this too. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. They, they brought porcupine in for heaven's sake. And it's wonderful. Uh, so I really, I actually really enjoy a lot of uh, John Byrne's sensational She-Hulk. When I originally read this, I was just a fan. I did not know a lot about the controversies, but let's go to sensational She-Hulk number 43. It's 1992. This is one of John Byrne's books. We're talking about John Byrne on my show a lot right now because we're in X-Men The Hidden Years during our issue reviews. And he did that whole series. He's the writer and there's a lot of the stuff that he does that's set right after the 60s. And it's good, but there's also a lot of controversy. He's, he's difficult to work with despite the tremendous talent that he is. So we open with this uh, on, on the cover of number, excuse me, at the end of number 43, She-Hulk learns that her allies have been captured by what they call the asparagus people. And they've never really been named much in the comics at this point. And this is already, what, 15 years after the Dark Phoenix saga and 30 years after Captain America got revived from the ice. Uh, She-Hulk says out loud about, about the asparagus people on the page. She goes, oh man, Chris Claremont isn't going to like this one. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Oh, John. 
<laughs> like that's a direct like it's not even subtle it's a, just a direct dig <laughs> yeah 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 and this is again this is where i think this is surprising for x-men fans because you you know about the dabari you know about the broccoli people but you probably don't know they're connected to avengers number four and also sensational she-hulk um in this story, She-Hulk breaks the fourth wall a lot. Byrne really pushes the limits on some things. There's one of these four issues here where, like, all of the pages are She-Hulk pinups uh, with, like, little action spots happening around her. There's another cover that's, like, made up out of puzzle pieces. Uh, yeah. And he he brings a bunch of random characters into this arc. Uh, did you have any favorites that show that show up here in the Asparagus People story? Um, I don't remember whether it was this, I believe it was, but Rocket Raccoon shows up, like an early version of Rocket shows up, right? Yeah, this is like the cartoon Rocket who was like a little animal guy that the Hulk ran into once. And now here he is. You're like, whoa. And this is like pre-Guardians Rocket. So he's 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 presented in a much different way, but it's it's surprising because you kind of get to look at that and you're like, okay, I get that. Razorback is also always a great character. Uh, (laughs) He's like a cosmic trucker at that time, right? And Mm -hmm. I think they... Did they run into US one at that point? Yeah, US US Archer, US one, US Archer was one of the like ongoing characters in the book for a little while. US Archer is a human guy that drives a rig through space. Really truly, that's that's what he is. It's a it's a crazy obscure area of Marvel uh Marvel Canon. Are you a are you a US one fan? I mean, who doesn't love trucks in space, man? You know, I mean, I don't necessarily love trucks in space. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually sort of kicking myself for not putting like a, 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 a cosmic truck stop in the <laughs> There's a few of those out there. Uh, we also get the ovoids. The ovoid is uh, ovoids are a race uh, that were introduced kind of in the back of a Fantastic Four. Doctor Doom gets launched into space, and you later learn that he survived because he ran into a group called the ovoids, who are these little yellow guys with giant foreheads. They, that taught him how to project his mind into the body of another person. That's literally the kind of their whole shtick. And they're featured here. We also see a race called the Carbon Copy Men, who are like some old Thor villains that have never shown up, I don't think before or since. I'd have to look that up to make sure, but they're very, yeah. very obscure. And they can basically make themselves look like other people. That's kind of all you need. Uh, Burn also brings in that one Dabari guy from uh, Avengers number four. <laughs> there he is. The basic plot here, uh, the Dabari, we still don't know his name at this point. Uh, he finds out his people have been destroyed because Dark Phoenix. Uh, and he meets up with some carbon copy men, and they agree to look like the Dabari so that he can have a little outpost with people who look like him. I don't really know what the motivation is for any of this. It just, you see like a, a planetoid with some Dabari on it, but it's actually not the Dabari, it's the carbon copy men. And they capture a bunch of random people for reasons and then turn them to stone. And then She-Hulk gets there and saves her friends. And that's really, truly all that happens. We barely see the Dabari on the page. This is just Burn pulling in a bunch of random shit and also poking fun at Chris Claremont. It's pretty, it's silly, it's fun. And it goes for four issues for some reason. <laughs> Even though I feel like it could be four pages. I almost kind of, I almost kind of wish he included the character to just be like to remind Chris what happened with the Dark Phoenix thing. And be like, remember this guy? Remember him? Ha ha ha! And just kind of like, you know, sometimes you like take something and you put it in someone's face that happened years ago, just to kind of like take them off. Maybe that's what this was. It was like, I'm going to show you this guy that you haven't thought about in 
you know, over a decade. Yeah, he's he's, off again. he's running around doing sensational She-Hulk stuff. And why not make it that? Uh, we don't get a lot of motivation. I mean, what we can look for for Vakir, if we're looking for the character moments, is he was trapped on Earth. By the time he got home, his whole planet had been destroyed. His people are gone. What a devastating tragedy. And to see him kind of uh, build this little civilization with people who aren't actually his people you see, although it's not directly stated on the page, kind of a desperation for him to reclaim his home and to build what he lost. He's the, or one of the only survivors of an entire race of people. And, and that's very sad. And even though it's not really explored, I think we can look for that nuance for this character. Yeah, and this is definitely the the seed for his later stories. The thing that shows basically like, look, who doesn't want, like who, 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 doesn't want to be around people who are like them, who doesn't want to reclaim something you've lost. And that's kind of what this is. You know, if you ran into a group of people who could change their shape, wouldn't you want them to turn into the people that you most miss? That's kind of what he's doing. If I was trapped in space and I asked some shape-shifting aliens to look like humans so I could feel better, I get it. Oh, that's a weird psychology, but I get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like using virtual reality to create something that we're missing or or comfortable with. Uh so I, I can see that for Vakir. Um the 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 Dabari are a little bit like the Kotati. Do you know do you know anything about the Kotati race? Yep, yep, based. Yeah, they were um the main race of aliens that were in Empire. Yeah, Empire with a Y. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and I, I, there's nothing distinguishing them necessarily. I think the Kotati have more plant-based stuff. The the Dabari are a little bit more like broccoli people that are just like vegetables. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know that the Dabari are necessarily plant-based. I think they just look like plants, but they sure. they may not be. I, I don't know. There's never been, no one's ever really kind of drawn those lines, but maybe I should. Maybe you should. They look like fuzzy. They look like fuzzy Muppets. And some of the later portrayals of Buck, uh, he looks he looks a little bit more like his hair is more like dreadlocks or like yep. put into like uh, like tight braids. And it's a it's a cooler look for this character rather than that like shaggy guy we saw in Avengers Four. Uh, much like Sensational She Hulk, we two we get two alien characters that are often used to bring back other obscure characters. One of them is the stranger who's always collecting random people, and then you're like, oh look, they have that obscure character on his ship. Another one is the collector, and I love both the stranger and the collector. I I plan to give them more love on my show in the future. Uh, do you want to cover Wolverine Volume Two numbers one thirty six through one thirty eight? This is a nineteen ninety nine Eric Larson and Jet Matsuda on the book that gives us a collector story for reasons. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I can't really kind of dive into the collector too much. Um, for reasons. Um. Ooh. <laughs> is is that a hint of something you cannot discuss? Well, you know, who doesn't love the collector? I I will simply smile and go, yay. <laughs> uh, um, do you want to cover the Wolverine story? Uh, sure, we can talk about the Wolverine story. I'm just going to keep my thoughts about the collector to myself. That's completely fine, my friend. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's a good story. Uh, it's a story where you kind of start to see the Dabari's this this character Vuck's connection back to the whole Dark Phoenix story kind of start to see that sort of tie back together, um, where he sees Wolverine and he kind of reacts poorly 
Yeah, Wolverine's taken aboard the Collector's ship, and there's a bunch of aliens being kept captive, including the Dabari. And to me, this feels like a new character once again, kind of, in a way. Like, let's let's make a Dabari character. But almost like it has no tie-ins to the Avengers story or to this She-Hulk story. I don't know. Did you get that vibe? Like, it just felt like a like another Dabari character someone was tossing out there. Yeah, I, it, it may have been, you know, just sort of picking up. And I, again, I'm not Larson. I don't know kind of why he did what he did. But it may have been picking up on these notes that he'd seen along the way that the Dabari was connected to the Phoenix story and, you know, what have you. And it could maybe not be Buck. It might be another character. But um, who knows? Well, this Dabari sprouted a kid named Bustle. <laughs> So, so apparently it can, like, I, we don't know exactly what the story is. Maybe this race can have children through solo means. They can fertilize their own plant selves. I'm not exactly sure. But there is another Dabari kid here with him. Uh, B-Z-Z-T-L. Uh, when Vuck sees Wolverine, do you want to read his little speech here? Uh, he says, villain fiend, did you think to slink in here unrecognized? You, one of the accursed X-Men responsible for the creation of Dark Phoenix, the ravager of worlds, destroyer of my world. So, boom. And then kind of basically all you need is they agreed to follow Wolverine because he broke them out of prison. Uh, we're, we're skipping over other characters and other things that happened here, but uh, it, it's a, it's... This is an era of Wolverine where they were doing a lot of crazy stuff with this character. <laughs> He's the space prison liberator in this story. Yeah, I wasn't really reading that book at the time, so I had to kind of go back and check this one out. But uh, sure, Wolverine in space, who doesn't like that? Well, and much like in the She-Hulk story, Vuck is very in the background. You barely kind of see him. And then he's got a kid and you're like, oh, yay, he he found a, he got a baby. Like, who knows? Or maybe it's one of the carbon coffee men just looking like a baby. Who knows? <laughs> could be, could be. And then we finally get, we finally get Claremont uh, telling the character story that we need to finally tie all this together. And it just took like, you know, 50 years or however long, 48 years. So right. this is Uncanny X-Men number 387. It's the year 2000. Chris Claremont is back on the book. And I'm going to read some of his captions on the opening page here. And then we'll talk about what this issue is. Once upon a time, there existed a world named Dabari, so far distant from Earth that the numbers have no meaning. It was a thriving and peaceful culture, which existed within the sphere of influence of the Shi'ar Empire. The alliance with the dominant political and military force in their galaxy was intended to keep Dabari safe from foreign threats. No one went to bed on the planet's night side, realizing they would never wake up, just as those on the day side rose unaware that they would never see another sunset. In the planetary capital, the end came just before noon. The streets were thick with midday shoppers and workers off to lunch. It was spring, and the morning air was so crisp and biting, you couldn't help but be glad to be alive. Then, without warning, the sun got brighter, and before their startled, disbelieving eyes, it got bigger. A knowledgeable few understood what was happening, that their star had exploded. For most, though, there was time only to register their doom before it was upon them. At the heart of the supernova, ignorant of the devastation she has wrought upon an innocent world and its people, is a being who calls herself Dark Phoenix. Whatever her origins, the essence of her being, the template of her soul, is a human woman named Jean Grey. Jean is a mutant, born with abilities that set her apart from the rest of her race. In her case, those powers are telepathic. Not long ago, those powers placed her in contact with one of the primal forces of the cosmos, the embodiment 
of fire and life and the passion of creation. To save her friends, Jean allowed the cosmic entity to take her place. For all intents and purposes, it became human, subject to the same temptations and weaknesses any man or woman faces. For all the strength and courage Phoenix had taken from Jean as a human, Phoenix found itself overwhelmed by forces far beyond both its comprehension and control. Phoenix hungered. Phoenix fed. That Dabari died in the process was of no consequence. And this is really interesting for three reasons, all related to stories that Claremont did not want to tell. Number one, we already uh, talked about how he did not want there to be alien people that were murdered. So this is him owning the Dabari story. Sure. Number two, he didn't want Jean Grey to die. But once she did die, number three, he did not want her to come back. And when they relaunched X Factor in the early 80s and they brought Jean Grey back and re revealed that the whole person who had committed the genocide in the first place was just the Phoenix, but also it was Jean. <sighs> so this is Claremont kind of owning all of those things that happened that he didn't want to happen. In two pages of like this incredible narration, we see him really like changing our understanding from his perspective. And he does it so beautifully. We're going to get to the Starhammer in a second, but let me hear your thoughts on this narration, Neil. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's very Claremont. It's very over the top and well-written, <laughs> but also kind of Shakespearean. But yeah, this is him basically, you, you nailed it, him owning it. Him saying, like, look, this happened. And kind of taking, you know, whatever conflict he had brought back then to just say, like, this is what happened. I didn't love it, but this is how it is. But really kind of also setting the phoenix up to be more more than just gene more than just about the one character but as this sort of cosmic and then like claremont was very into and still is very into like kabbalah and you know very uh, very into like the, the cosmos and all that and so this is him kind of thinking larger than just a typical superhero story and for me this is you know part of that you know something we talked about earlier is what do we think the phoenix is and this is kind of what really informs that it just goes beyond just Jean Ray. And this is not a Phoenix story. This is a Dabari story, the one we're about to review in Uncanny X-Men 387. Yep. Uh, were you reading comics during the Maximum Security event? This is one that is not often remembered. <laughs> I was probably reading, but I probably wasn't reading Maximum Security at the time. <laughs> The, the basic story you need here is a bunch of galactic powers have united and they're like, Earth's a big problem. Fuck those guys. And they uh, like they repelled Galactus and they were the ones that made Dark Phoenix. And so we need to like contain them, basically. And, right, and they have like, so, this, was this where like Ronan the Accuser was sort of in charge of the planet? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So they made Earth a prison planet. They like put a big wall around it and then dumped all of their worst aliens on earth. And so all the books in Marvel for this summer are fighting a bunch of alien characters that you wouldn't normally see. And somehow Vuck ended up here imprisoned on earth. Uh, tell us what happens with, uh, with Vuck and, and uh, who Starhammer is. So he somehow gets this armor, this, I don't even know where he got, it doesn't really kind of go and explain it. He just gets armor. And he starts calling himself the Starhammer. And this is kind of where his like more modern story takes off, where he's kind of looking for revenge now, right? He's he's after Jean Grey. He's he heard she's alive. He wants to to go after her and get revenge for what the Phoenix did to his people. 
Now, one of, the, one of the interesting oh, things I was going to say, one of the interesting things for here, he left Earth in Avengers number four. When we see him in She-Hulk and in Wolverine, he's not on Earth. And now he's been thrown back to Earth. So you almost wonder if he has made peace with what happened, but now he's back on Earth and Jean Grey's running around again. And he's like, oh, no, this is not going to work for me. This lady destroyed my planet. Like, that's kind of the canon that I put together in my head for this guy. Maybe. I mean, so the question is, is he he's here because he's here forcibly, right? He's not here. He's not here as like a guard or somebody who's helping no, he, uh, he, did, he did something to piss somebody off and got thrown on to earth as a result we don't know exactly what the what the deal is here right and he doesn't even mention that like i was here before right i was here i was trapped for a long time and there's no mention of that there's no mention of like his history i think that was, was later put together by the handbook guys right, exactly. <laughs> i think they tied so, it all together so it's definitely just about the phoenix it's just about gene gray's here i don't like gene gray i'm going to take her out and he uses like the imperial guardsmen to do it right he like teams up with the guardsmen so there's four imperial guardsmen here that have also somehow been imprisoned on earth like they pissed the shiar off somehow we've got uh hassar who's the red like whip lady and yep. then Warstar, who's like the little guy on the robot and then neutron who's like the dark cosmic guy with star powers and Webwing, who's a pretty obscure one. He's like a octopus. Thing. Yeah, I've never heard of Webwing. <laughs> um, the others I've heard of. They're they're like you've seen them in a bunch of stories before. And what's interesting is that like, yeah, what are they doing here? Like, I thought they were like superheroes, right? What like what did they do to piss off the Shi'ar? They, I don't know. They missed guard duty one day, and gladiators like, fuck you, go to Earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but he uses them to go after the x-men and specifically after gene gray they've also got some mandroids working for them for some reason which is another weird thing uh but they end up fighting the x-men there's beast cable gambit and rogue here but he's targeting gene gray do you want to read uh starhammer's speech to her yeah he says i'm glad you resist i want you to fight I want you to know what it's like to be helpless in the face of certain and inescapable doom. To know right in the end that there is no hope. You may call me Starhammer. This is my party, which is a great line. Um, I'm the instrument of justice and righteous vengeance. I'm here to kill you. So uh, this story gives this character some powers. He seems pretty rough uh gene survives his initial attack he says top marks for effort and execution my girl and as well for pluck i love the word pluck whatever it's used it makes me happy but success well so much for that idea i trust you've now learned your lesson resistance is futile which is of course the borg thing to say uh how does gene defeat him so she basically uh as far as i can tell she she tricks him she she uh, she tricks Starhammer to to say that he defeated her, right? And like mm -hmm. ends up giving him some sort of projection that he's killed that he's killed her, right? She initially like reads his mind and experiences memories, and it pisses him off. 
She says, it wasn't me who did it. And he yells, don't you dare say that. Don't you dare. I know the story. I managed to spirit it from the archives of the majestic, majestic Shi'ar herself. So maybe this is how he got in prison. <laughs> if not for you, the great destroyer would never have assumed corporeal form. It is you who allowed that primal spirit to become flesh. You who allowed it the means and the will to act. We meant no harm. We did no harm. Yet we were annihilated for no other reason than that Dark Phoenix was hungry. And worst of all, she cared nothing for the lives she took. We might have been dust for all we mattered. She was truly named. Was that abomination the end of all that lives? Of an entire race, I alone survive to bear witness to our Holocaust and exact a just and final retribution. And then he believes he has murdered Jean. And yes. he calls out, dear wife, Beloved children, lost family and friends, my task is done. You are avenged. Let's talk about the ethics of telepathy for a moment. <laughs> what do you think about the defeat of this character here? So, yeah. So that's a tough one. And it's, I don't really kind of see a lot of people discussing the ethics of mind wiping or change or giving somebody like a, like a happy ending in their mind, like a, like a, like a, nice moment in their mind to really uh, stop them from doing something worse, right? Um, I will say that some of this touches the Phoenix Chase book. There's a lot of questions about, you know, using psionic abilities to stop a situation from getting worse than it really is. Um, but generally, uh, the X-Men don't really kind of discuss that so much. Um, or not that I've seen. The uncomfortable parallel, and I hope it's okay to make this. I know your faith is a big part of you, but imagine a concentration camp survivor who has survived a genocide going after a Nazi character who who can who considers to be a villain. We we think of Jean Grey as a hero, of course. But the uh the the vision given to that person is not one of healing, not let me mend your trauma, but I'm gonna let you believe that you murdered me and then go about your life. Goodbye. It's, yeah, uh, it's, it's tricky business. It's tricky. Uh, it's it's not. It's me it's messy is probably the best word for it. Um, and you kind of wonder if like this is her version of giving him like what he wants, right? I'll give you what you want, and by doing that, I'll, you know, I'll stop you from doing something worse. Um, I don't now, know. It's, obviously. It's, uh, Obviously, your book is going to explore a lot about the Phoenix and a lot about what it is and a lot about the ethics around all of this. Where did you come up with using Starhammer? Is it from this appearance? So this, so part of this, part of this, and then later on, uh, the idea that um, he basically has this confrontation with Jean Grey, who makes him believe that he's killed her. And at the top of the book, um, our mysterious alien attackers are looking for someone to, who has had a connection to the Phoenix. And as you can, uh, you learn that they've been going from like, from world to world looking for somebody that has fought or faced or been, uh, has faced down the power of the Phoenix and they go to New Dabari, which is the planet that he ends up repopulating with yeah we're, we'll talk about that in a minute we'll get there shortly <laughs> um and basically they go to to him they fight starhammer and they defeat him in the book i'm not i mean it doesn't really spoil most of the book but they go and they defeat him and basically say he can't help us with what we're looking for 
because he's had contact, but he didn't, he didn't actually beat them. He didn't actually beat the Phoenix. He didn't do what he thinks he did. And he's sort of a little horrified by that, by saying like, no, I did it. And they're like, no, she tricked you. You can't help us. And they just kind of leave him there. Did you guys, did you, did you just have this character kind of in the back of your head? Uh, and you're like, oh, I should use him. Or did you, did he come up in your research? Um, so not when I first started, when I first started, that wasn't the original beginning of the book. I wasn't going to start off with Starhammer. Um, but I knew that I wanted to introduce the villain, the, the, the antagonists of the book in a, in a way. And I, I thought it would be interesting to see that they've been searching for Phoenix hosts or not just Phoenix hosts, but people who have uh, battled Phoenix hosts. And so I was looking for sort of like at all the more obscure characters that have kind of touched or, or been in combat with them. And uh, Starhammer came up. It was, you know, he was one of the people that I came across in my research and I read about him and with a more, you know, this appearance specifically um, where Jean Grey kind of, uh, you know, gives him this mental facade and thought, oh, this would be kind of interesting because it's somebody that, you know, our villains kind of go after saying, oh, he can help us. And then they discover, oh, no, she tricked him. It's a hoax. And he's he's useless to us. And so that's what I was looking for. Somebody who had faced down the Phoenix, but really was ultimately useless. So they had to move on to find Quentin. I'm super impressed, man. This is going to be, I'm, I'm genuinely excited to read your book. This is going to be really fun. You did your research. I, I'm always I'm, so impressed by this. Thank you. I always do. I always do. Uh, we get his last appearance in a, a, a story I could have completely forgotten about, even though I read it years ago. But I just didn't, this character was not in my brain until I went and researched him a few weeks ago. This is X-Men Gold Annual Number 1, 2018, by Mark Guggenheim and friend of the podcast, Leah Williams, uh, who we adore. Uh, tell us, about, well, do you want to read the opening captions on this one? Uh, it, it, it establishes a whole bunch of stuff that has happened for our character off panel. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so like we said, he, you know, last we've seen him, he's, he believes that he's defeated the Phoenix. And so now it's what <laughs> a long time later and we are on the planet new Dabari. Uh, and it says new Dabari heroes court, the great star hammer monument, uh, which by the way, is the way my book starts. Oh. Years ago, the planet Dabari suffered an extin extinction event. Dark Phoenix wiped their whole world from the stars with a wave of the, her hand. Only stragglers who were far from home on distant starship outposts survived. A hero known as Starhammer helped to rebuild what was left of Dabari society, and he avenged their species when he destroyed Dark Phoenix's descendant, Rachel Gray, who was also a host to the powerfully destructive cosmic Phoenix, Phoenix Force. But this tale of vengeance turned out to be a lie. Starhammer hadn't killed Rachel Gray. No, she used, used her telepathy to make him believe she'd succeeded. Exiled from his home, shunned by his family, Starhammer watches as the monument built to honor the Dabari's last gray hero is torn down. The disgraced Starhammer, blind with rage and embarrassment, now seeks only one thing, revenge. So, so what happened? Yeah. <laughs> so two, two things, two things. Thing number one, somebody's messing with our pal, the Starhammer, because he thinks that it was Rachel and not Jean Grey that he destroyed, which I believe becomes part of the story that we're they're telling in this issue. That somebody's messing, basically, somebody's messing with our pal's mind. Um, the other thing is, 
what I just told you about the Phoenix chase basically informs this whole thing where he learns I didn't kill the Phoenix. Right? Mm -hmm. And what happens after exile, shunned, that whole thing. We can assume that happens after my chapter. You don't really see him after my chapter, after that chapter. But basically, um, this page, my book starts a page before. And then what would naturally happen if, you know, if we tied in X-Men Gold to the Phoenix Chase, this would be what, you know, the events that happened after that chapter. It's a bold beginning. We don't know where New Dabari came from. We don't know who's populating the planet. We don't know how a monument to him got built or why it's being torn no, down. No, no. We don't know why he thinks that Rachel Gray did all of this or who is altering the memories. Uh, it's it's a weird story. There's a lot that's happening kind of behind the scenes that's left to explore. So it definitely lets you fill in the gaps. You know, you can assume that after whatever happened with him and Jean, with Jean Grey during the maximum security event, he clearly went to go decide, well, I mean, look, the thing that drove him all these years, the need for revenge, uh, he had two things that, were, that was driving him, the need for revenge and the need for family, right? The need for his people. So having solved one, I can only assume he just went to do the other thing, right? Like, okay, now I've taken revenge on Jean Grey, now, because after that's done, I'm going to go repopulate my world or find a new world or sprout, sprout and sprout some more. Right. So um, that's kind of what happened. He he basically rebuilt his race. And it's kind of what the impossible man did once. The impossible man's uh -huh. people got wiped out. And then he just popped a bunch of new ones out. <laughs> yep, there you go. And so and so because he did that to to his people who he's basically brought his people back from extinction, he's a hero. And that's kind of what my assumptions were at the beginning of this book. He's the hero. He saved the Dabari. He brought them back to life. But something happens uh, to basically pull the lie away from their eyes to say that, oh, he didn't actually uh, complete his first mission. He didn't kill the Phoenix. Something happened. And to me, in my book, that thing happens at the beginning of the Phoenix chase fascinating so you fill in the blanks here i did fill the blanks yeah that's fantastic in this particular story in the x-men gold annual starhammer attacks earth he rams his ship into braddock into the braddock house where rachel's staying behold your final reckoning has arrived death greets you all and his name is starhammer i love his little monologue speeches uh vuck is shocked because rachel doesn't remember him uh, his tech attacks those present. There's Kitty Pride and Megan and Captain Britain, and their little super intelligent genius baby Maggie, who's like an infant but also like a super genius. Yep. And Star Starhammer's planning to conquer the Earth by stranding all of the heroes in another dimension. But Maggie uses her precision to like pinpoint a specific dimension where the Dabari are thriving. And they kind of just toss Star Starhammer through it. They're like, look, go find a new colony. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and then they close the portal behind him, which is a much better ending than letting him believe he'd murdered someone that he hadn't. I agree. I agree. But you still don't quite get the answer of like how, why he thought it was Rachel versus Jean. Somebody definitely messed with his mind. Did Jean do it? When, did Jean, when she was messing with his mind, did she make him think it was Rachel? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Uh, um, I, so if you, I'm a big fan of, if, oh. Oh, good. Go ahead. I'm a big fan of filling in the blanks of continuity. And so the one thing that I can think of, which would be an amazing story, is that, um, so at the end of the whole End of Grey's storyline, where the Shi'ar come and basically eliminate the Grey family, except for Rachel, 
mm-hmm. um, because they want to eliminate the gray bloodline. I kind of, I kind of was hoping like that you'd find out that like the Shi'ar did it to him, that like the Shi'ar implanted that like, oh, it's Rachel Gray, not Jean. Go kill her. So that they would kind of like sense. close off, like close off that last thing. And I don't know that they that that was ever revealed, but that would be a great story if like you find out that like that's what it was. Well, Claremont also gave us that uh, in that one line of dialogue or caption that the Shi'ar, the, the Shi'ar and the Dabari were connected. So there, I mean, there's a lot of places. Plus, he teamed with the Imperial Guard and he raided the Majestrix's uh, uh, systems. So yeah. I mean, there there's some stories happening for this guy off off panel. Also, where did he get his armor? Uh, for completionists out there, there are some other surviving Dabari. It's rare. In uh, Nova Volume 2, Number 1, there's a Dabari named Taswitsa, uh, T-A-S apostrophe W-Z-T-A, who's a member of the Nova Corps that gets killed in that issue. Uh, Jean Grey, also during that weird adventure with the cosmic construction worker uh, in the classic X-Men number 42, if you, uh, people know that story and remember it fondly, but she experienced the death of the Dabari there. We also see a Dabari held captive by the scroll slavers in one panel in uh, New Mutants number 92, which is illustrated by a friend of the podcast, Bob Hall. Uh, so we do have some other Dabari out there, and there are stories that could potentially be told about these characters. Uh, as we're kind of wrapping up our conversation about Vuck or Starhammer, uh, I know you're telling a big story, and I can't wait to go see it. But what's the story we need about this guy? I, uh, I mean, he can be just one more guy that comes and punches the X-Men around once in a while, and they throw him aside. He's almost treated as a joke even though he's a genocide survivor in a way, the connection to the Avengers and the stone turning thing is so wild to me. Uh, what's the story we need? Yeah. So all of that is, is fascinating. I, I, for me, like I said, I think the the two key, the three key things you need to know is, you know, what the Phoenix meant to his people, right? What was the Phoenix did. Um, and then how it really informed his life going forward. Right. Those two things, right. Seeking revenge and seeking to find the world and the people that he lost. And he doesn't, he's not a big part of the book. He's in the book and I'm excited to have him there because I love to take these obscure characters and bring them back front and center. But really that's kind of what drives the opening here. The opening is, you know, this moment in Starhammer Court where he's just learned that everything he believed was a lie. And to, you know, to really kind of tie that to, to, to X-Men continuity is kind of what I was hoping to do. Um, so just kind of those two main points is, is really all you need to inform his character. I don't know if he's going to show up back again, you know, back up again in the comics beats me. You know, these characters have a way of popping up as we've seen every 20 to 30 years. What I love about it is that, you know, like I said, you know, I did a lot of research on uh, Marvel aliens and, and, and the galaxy and all these cosmic characters and it's fun to just take some of these characters that you haven't seen in a long time or just showed up in a panel here or there and really kind of pop them into a narrative and say like, yeah, I remember this character from a comic I loved and I'm going to bring him into my narrative because I love him, you know, and, and sometimes that's all you need, like the secret mites, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Nilkhad, I'm so impressed by you. I can't wait to read your book. If this is one chapter, you clearly have worked a lot of stuff in. You've got me excited for Starjammers and for Havoc and for Phoenix and for Kid Omega. 
Uh, I can't wait to get the book. I I should I've, I've pre-ordered it, so I should get it in the mail right around the oh. time we're dropping this episode, and I'll, I'll definitely post some images. But I'm uh, I'm genuinely excited, man. It's great to hear uh, some of your stories, and I will potentially question mark wait for something about the collector in the future, which you cannot or will not confirm. <laughs> well, I, I like the collector. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> uh we're gonna put this episode out around may 17th originally on the patreon channel we'll put it back out uh so we'll we'll promote it twice back when it comes out on the show in the summer uh is there anything you'd like to plug and where could people find you online yeah so i'm on uh twitter and instagram uh under neil clyde um i've got a book uh, bookshop link that has all my graphic novels and prose books right up there you can kind of order directly from the bookshop link and help support independent bookstores. Um, other than this, I've got a couple things coming out next year that are more on the independent side. Um, I've got a Kickstarter coming around, coming up that's going to collect uh, a short comic I did uh, several years ago called Kings in Canvas, which is uh, like a fantasy comic that I did with my friends Jake Allen and Frank Reynoso. And then I'm working on a uh, Jewish crime suburban story that'll come out in 2024. Uh, and just follow my social to see some images and look for it as as it comes. Fabulous, man. I'm so honored to know you and I'm so excited to like hear your stories behind things. Uh, it makes me a bigger fan of your work when I know you personally even. So uh, what, a, what a joy to have you here today, man. Thank you for, for coming yeah. and hanging out with me. Um, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but you can find Gray Malkin Lane, Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore Lane on Instagram. Uh, we are booked and blessed into the summer and I have so many really wonderful things coming up right around the time we release this episode. Uh, we'll be putting out on the main channel, a review of fantastic Four: the world's greatest comic magazine, number three, which features an early X-Men appearance right after the sixties books that a lot of people don't know about. Uh, my guest on that episode is going to be classic artist Gordon Purcell, who I'm so excited to meet. Uh, and then the next Patreon episode right after this, if the schedule turns out the way it should, is going to feature the X-Factor villains, the Alliance of Evil with uh, novelist and comics writer Alex Segura, uh, who is just the best. Uh, so uh, stay tuned, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening. Neil, thank you for hanging out. Uh, we'll see you all back here next time on Gray Malkin Lane.